Uh, We're turning to Psalm 127. Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. If you crack that thing open, you're probably going to end up in Psalms or pretty close. Psalm 127 is on page 441, if you have one of those black paperback Bibles. And it's on page 298 in the gold Bibles. Um, And I hope it will also go up on the screen behind me. And I would ask that you would please follow along as I read from Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's pray together. Our Father, the, the first verses of this sermon, of this passage, um, they are true of every area of life. There is no area of life in which we are able to do what we want to do apart from you. That if you If you don't build, if you don't watch, if you don't help, then all of our efforts are in vain. And so that's, we come to this time with that awareness that unless you come, unless you come and you speak to us, unless you open your word to us, unless you shine your light on our lives and help us to see how your word connects to our lives, that this will be in vain but we don't want it to be in vain, and we trust you that it won't be, that we trust you that in this time that you will come and that you will speak to us and that you will work in our lives, that you will make us more like Jesus. That's what we long for, and we pray that you would come by your Spirit and do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this this psalm has puzzled people over the years because it feels like It feels almost like someone found a couple poems that Solomon had written, a poem about work and a poem about children, and they said, if we take these little poems together, we'll just paste them together, that's a psalm. That's long enough, just done and done. Next psalm. It it feels like there's this, this disjunction right in the middle. He's talking about work, and then all of a sudden, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. But when Solomon, there's, there's a deep unity to this psalm. When Solomon speaks about work and when he speaks about family, he's speaking about the areas of our life that we give by far the most thought and attention to. The areas that are often the sources of our greatest stress and worry and joy. And he says, what he's saying in this psalm is, if you want a truly fruitful life, you can't have that unless you're fruitful at work and you're fruitful at home. And you can't be fruitful at work and fruitful at home, unless you ha- there's, there's one truth about God you have to deeply trust and treasure if you want to be fruitful in both of those areas, at work and at home with your family. 
These, the two parts of the psalm are united because they point us to one truth about God. He is the provider for his people. And the only way to be truly, lastingly fruitful is to depend on him. That's what we we're going to see in this psalm as we go through it. So Solomon shows us here what depending on God enables at work and what depending on God enables at home. And what depending on God enables at work is that depending on God enables us to rest in our work and rest from our work. So Solomon tells us there's a way of living in which even when you're resting, you're working. And there's a way of living in which even when you're working, you're resting. He tells us there's a way of approaching work that will absolutely eat you alive. Not because of the work itself, but because of the work under the work, the work you can never get away from. Even when you close the computer or lock up the classroom or change out of the uniform, the work you carry with you everywhere. He calls it, in verse 2, anxious toil. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. There's a way of working that flows from anxiety. It flows from fear. If I, don't, if I don't make my deadline, the client will be angry with me. And if the client is angry with me, then I'm going to be a problem for my boss. And if I'm a problem for my boss, I'm not going to be promoted. And if I'm not promoted, I'll never make partner. And if I, if I don't make partner, I will never be financially secure. And suddenly, your entire security in life is bound up with a single deadline. There's a work under your work, a, a gnawing fear that won't let you rest, that won't let you stop until you have everything done. This way of working is driven by fear. I have to ace my evaluation or else. I have to keep the customers happy or, or else. I have to impress every parent or else. Or else what? I don't know, but something bad. When our work is driven by fear, when it's driven by anxiety, we can never really rest. Solomon says the person whose work is anxious toil, they rise up early, they go late to rest. We would say they burn the candle at both ends. They're up while it's still dark. They're in the office while other people are still sleeping. When other people are going home to eat with their families, they're still at their desks, plugging away, headphones in, right? When they finally hit a wall, they just can't go anymore. By this time, it's dark. They're eating their dinner alone. And even when they're eating their dinner, they're still thinking about work. They're, they're eating the bread of anxious toil. They're not even tasting their food. They're just they're putting bread in their mouth, but they're still tasting work. It's just work all the time. They can't let it go. And then they go to bed too late. They get up too early, and they go off to exhaust themselves further. It sounds miserable, doesn't it? Who, who would want to live like that? Well, nobody wants to live like that. They don't do it because they want to. They do it because they feel like they need to. When, when your work is anxious toil, you think everything depends on you. That if, if you don't work harder than everyone else, if you don't make the most of every opportunity, if you ever turn your brain off, if you ever turn your phone off, then everything's going to fall apart. You're going to lose your job. You won't advance. You'll never be secure. And if you'll never secure, you'll never be happy. So what does anxious toil show? It shows that in your heart, you're looking to yourself. You're looking to your work for ultimate security. You are your ultimate provider. And if you don't believe in God, then anxiety makes total sense. If you're alone in the universe, if there's no 
all-powerful being watching over you in love, then it makes sense that worry would eat you up because everything really does stand or fall on you. It makes sense that you would exhaust yourself all day and lie awake at night. I would too. But if you're a Christian, why would you live as though what ultimately determines your well-being is you? Solomon three times describes this way of living as in vain. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And we all know what it means when something is in vain, right? It means it's for nothing. We have, we have all had the experience of sitting for hours in a government waiting room, and you finally get called up to the counter, and they tell you, I'm sorry, you pulled the wrong number. I, I can't do anything for you. You're going to have to go back and pull the right number and wait again and then talk to the person you need, right? Or they say, you brought the wrong form. I, this, this is lacking a signature. And, and you're, you're standing there like, are you saying that I've sat here for hours in vain? That I, I have nothing to show for this? Or you go to the beach with your kids, right? And you spend the better part of an hour building a sandcastle, and then a, a wave comes in and washes it away, and your kids, they, they break down, don't they? And why? Because all of that was in vain. It was for nothing. Why is anxious toil in vain? Because we actually can't guarantee that our work will lead to security or to success. It's not in our power. We can't control all the possibilities. We can't make sure that everybody else is going to do what they have to do so we can do what we have to do. We are not God. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, right? Unless he's in it, there's no security. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless There's no success unless he's in it. If you think that your well-being in life depends on your work, then you can, you can work night and day, get up early and go to bed late, and you can put in 30 years of 70-hour weeks and look back on it and say, that was all for nothing. It was all in vain. It was sandcastles. And that would be incredibly depressing if there wasn't another way. But there is. The alternative to anxious toil is dependence on God. So Solomon in verse 2, he paints two contrasting pictures, right? The first picture is the picture of anxious toil, right? We've looked at that. It's this person eating in the dark after a day of exhausting labor, eating the bread of anxious toil. But there's a second picture in verse 2. He says, he says this first anxious toil, that's in vain because, at the end of verse 2, he, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. So one of these people thinks everything depends on them, and so they can never rest. But this other person is able to put aside all worry and sleep because they know that they are the beloved of the Lord. Dependence on yourself leads to anxious toil, but dependence on God leads to rest. So think about how God has designed us, right? So to function at all we need to spend a third of our lives unconscious. The world has not yet seen the human who didn't need sleep. God, God has hardwired dependence into us. Every evening, we have to trust that everything in our life is going to be okay if we don't think about it and don't do anything with it for eight hours, or more realistically, six. John Piper says, 
Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. Isn't that good? If you were here two weeks ago, you saw in Psalm 121 that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. But we have to, because we are not God. For a Christian, sleep is an expression of humility. It's admitting, I am not God. I need to sleep. I can't guarantee anything on my own. And it's an expression of faith. It's trusting that God's going to take care of everything you need all night. So if you don't know God as your provider, if you depend on yourself, you can never really rest. Even when you're resting, your heart is restless with anxious toil. But if you know God as your provider, if you depend on him, then you can really rest. You can receive rest as a gift from God. So you've heard of the Sabbath, maybe. What was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a day of rest for the people of God, right? It was one of the Ten Commandments. God said you have to remember the Sabbath day. But it actually... God gave it initially even before that. So when God's people came out of, they came out of Egypt, right? They came out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They came, now they're in the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai. And in the wilderness where they were, in the desert, there wasn't enough to eat. And so God gave them manna every day, right? Bread from heaven. They would get up in the morning and food would be there. They would gather it and there'd be enough for everybody. They would all have enough. But if they, if they tried to keep it overnight, it would go bad, They had to trust that each day the food was going to be there. God was going to provide for them. It was daily bread, right? But on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, they could gather twice the amount, and it wouldn't go bad. It would keep overnight. So what what was God showing them? Then then on Saturday, they they didn't have to gather. They could just eat what they'd gathered the day before. They could really have a day of rest. What was God showing them? What was God teaching them through the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a weekly reminder that their gathering wasn't what provided for them. God provided for them. He could provide as much as they needed. It wasn't about them. It was his goodness. It was his generosity. We weren't made to live on the bread of anxious toil. We were made to live on bread from heaven, on daily bread, on the provision of our Heavenly Father. Now, many of you are parents, Do you want your children lying awake at night worrying about where their next meal is going to come from? Would you say, well, good for them. That it shows they're taking their responsibility seriously. No, right? You you want them to trust that mommy and daddy are always going to take care of them. You want them to be able to fall asleep and know that you're taking care of things when they're doing nothing, right? You want them to trust you enough to sleep, and your father wants the same for you. Now, we don't, we don't like to admit it, but in our culture, we kind of admire the workaholic. The guy or girl who's always at the office before you, still there when you leave, answering emails at 6 a.m. on Sunday. You have kind of an awe of them. How do they do it? How do they just keep going all the time? You don't necessarily want to be them, but they have your respect for the strength of their commitment and their endurance. But Psalm 127 tells us that workaholism isn't a sign of strength, but weakness. People who can't stop working can't stop because they don't trust that God's going to take care of them if they rest. 
They can't depend on him as their provider. They think everything depends on them. Those who know God as their provider can rest and sleep. Now, does all that mean that work isn't important? No, it's important. God gave his people a day of rest, but he expected diligence the other six. Paul tells us in Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, we're supposed to work hard. God is a worker, and, and we please him when we imitate him in our work. Christians should be known for their diligence. Work is important. It's just not ultimate. It's one part of our service to God, but it's not ultimately work that secures us. God secures us. So when we work, we say, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So I'm going to labor, but Lord, you have to build the house. Lord, teach this class. Audit these books. Manage this team. Write this sermon. It's in vain without you. We work, but we work in dependence on him, knowing that our security and success are ultimately in his hands. And when we rest, we really rest. We say, God gives to his beloved sleep, and because I have trusted in Jesus, I am his beloved. I can eat with my family and not think about what I didn't get done today. I can read stories to my kids without checking my phone. I can leave my laptop in the bag. The emails will be there in the morning. God is my provider, and he gives me rest. When you work and rest in faith, you will almost certainly not be the first one in the office and the last one at night and the one responding first to emails. You, you may not be your boss's favorite. It may not be the fast track to promotion. But working in faith is better than working in fear, eating the bread of anxious toil. When you depend on yourself to provide, you work even when you rest. But when you know God is your provider, you can rest even in your work, knowing that, that ultimately everything doesn't hang on you, and you can rest from your work, trusting God to provide when you need to turn your focus other places, like to home, which is where Solomon turns his attention as well. So, Depending on God at work enables us to rest in our work and from our work, and depending on God enables us at home to receive children as gifts and to raise them to go. So look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. That word heritage, it means, it means inheritance, right? And inheritance isn't something you achieve, it's something you receive, so when he says children are a heritage, he means children are a gift from God. And obviously we all say we believe this, right? When someone has a baby and you see the baby, you say, aw, congratulations, what a blessing. You don't say, I am so sorry for the loss of your time and your money and your freedom. You have my sympathy, right? We, we, believe, we say we believe that children are a gift, but do our lives show that we believe it? Children come with a bundle of worries and responsibilities. They consume an enormous amount of time, right? You can't hear my wife saying amen in the back with a five-month-old. At the beginning, it's an interminable cycle of feeding them, changing their nappy, holding them because they won't let you put them down, holding them some more because they fell asleep and now you can't put them down, and then waking up to feed again. It's just all the time. When they're toddlers, you spend your time keeping them from hurting themselves or from escaping the house. And then after that, it's driving them to sports and music lessons. It's homework help. They consume your time. They consume your money, right? They, 
They need food. They need clothes because they won't stop growing. They need to go to doctors. They need an education. Parenting, if you're doing it right, it does upend your life. It does change your priorities. So on one level, it's understandable if there are people here thinking, yes, children are a gift, just not a gift I want right now. Maybe when we're a little more settled. Maybe when we're a little more secure. Maybe once we've had our fill of travel and adventure. The question this psalm prompts us to ask is, do we genuinely see children as a heritage and reward as a good thing? Or do we see them as a danger to our security and our happiness? Are they something to be received with joy or something to be prevented as long as possible? And if you see them as a danger, as a burden, as an expense, then on whom are you depending to provide for them? Are you depending on yourself or are you depending on God? If God provides children, will he not provide for them? Now, it's important to note that Solomon does not specify the right age to have children, although he extols the blessing of having children when you're young. Verse 4, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Nor does he specify the right number of children above which you are godly, below which you are subpar. He says in verse 5, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, but he stops short of saying that every quiver needs to be the same size. He doesn't say every family must have children. Solomon doesn't give us a comprehensive family plan. He paints us a picture. He says, here's a family that had a handful of kids while they were still young, and they're blessed. This is a good thing. And what this calls for is an examination of our hearts. Does that picture seem good to you? Or does it seem risky, foolish, short-sighted? I mean, married people, if you found out today that you were going to have a child or another child, would you feel favored or would you feel worried? Are you looking to God as your provider or to yourself? Now, it's so important to say here that when Solomon says children are a heritage and a reward, he does not mean, and the Bible does not teach, that the way to measure God's love for you is by his giving or withholding of children. People who are able to have children are not more loved than those who are not. One of the most remarkable things about the the Old Testament especially, but the whole Bible, is how many of its heroines have trouble conceiving. Sarah, Rebecca. Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth. This passage does not mean that those who can have kids are more loved. It means that anyone who has kids should see them as a gift. And that all of us should genuinely weep and grieve with those who want kids and can't have them. Because what they want and don't have is a good thing. Depending on God enables us to receive our children as gifts, and it enables us to raise them to go. So if we know that our children have come from God, then we know that they were his first, and we're responsible to raise them for his purposes. So in verse 4, Solomon says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And what are arrows for? They're for shooting For sending out, look at verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So the gate of the city was uh, like the court 
of the city in, in the time the Old Testament was written. It was, it was the place where accusations were made, where defenses were presented, where judgments were handed down. And this man never has to come into court alone because he has his children with him. He's raised them to share his values, to fight his fights, to own his way of life, and they will continue to do so when he's gone. Our children are arrows we send into the future (laughs) to continue to live for God and speak of him at a time when we no longer will. They're disciples. First, they're our disciples, and then, God willing, they're Jesus' disciples. And he may call them to leave and to go somewhere else. And if we trust God as our provider, we'll be able to let them go. One of my heroes is Jim Elliott, who was an American missionary who was martyred at a young age, trying to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe in Ecuador. And when his parents found out that he was planning to move to South America, they were sad. They were upset about it. And he wrote this in a letter to them. He wrote, Grieve not if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice rather seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children? He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. What are arrows for but to shoot? And if our children are going to become arrows, they will need to be shaped. And that's where a lot of us parents are now. Our kids do not feel like arrows. And they're not yet. They're sticks. (laughs) They're arrows in the rough. They're messy and loud and demanding and stubborn. They need to be shaped. Derek Kidner, who's a Bible commentator, wrote about this passage. It is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful. And some of you are saying, amen. Yes, a handful is what they are. Parenting is hard work. And just like the work of verses 1 and 2, unless the Lord raises the children, the parents labor in vain. We look to him. We pray And we teach, and we correct, and then we pray some more. We don't parent for the immediate reward. We parent looking to the day when our grown children will share our faith and our mission and our way of life when they pray for us and they push us in our walk with Christ. Do your children know? Do they know that you see them as a gift? Do they have all of your attention some of the time? Do they see you doing as much parenting as you can or as little parenting as you must? Do they know that your ultimate ambition for them is not academic or athletic or financial? Do they know that what you want most for them is that they would be your brother or sister in Christ? And if you don't have children, do you see children as gifts or as burdens and dangers? Do your plans regarding children, reflect the reality that God is the provider of your family. 
And whether you have kids or not, are we helping one another in this church to raise our children to go? Do you pray for the children of this church, the, the children who are back there right now learning about Jesus? Do you pray for them, not just your own kids, but everyone's? Do you pray for the parents in your community group and support one another in the hard times of parenting? This passage lays out a beautiful life, a life in which we work and we rest without fear, in which we receive children and send them out without fear because we know that God is our unfailing provider. The good life is not lived in fear, but in faith. But we knew that, didn't we? We, we know that we should live by faith, and we don't. We worry, and we lie awake. We ignore our kids because we're thinking about work. We know we should trust God and not be afraid, but we don't. So how can we change? Solomon can tell us where to go, but he can't take us. And in reality, he didn't even go there himself. He didn't live this picture. I don't know if you know about Solomon's son, Rehoboam, but he was so far from an arrow in the hand of a warrior that when he was king, the entire kingdom split into two. Solomon can't take us where we need to go. But years later, centuries later, another wise king said, The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than Solomon. He doesn't just tell us the wise way to live, but he can actually bring us into it. Solomon can tell us that God is a provider, but Jesus can convince our hearts. Because who is it? For whom does God provide? He provides for his beloved. How do we know that we're his beloved? Because his son, Jesus, died on the cross, the death we deserve for our sins. And when we trust in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, but we're united to him. He comes and lives within us. And when we're tempted to doubt, to question whether God's going to provide, he, in us, points us to himself and says, If my father gave you me, what will he withhold? What are you going to lack? If you are trusting in Christ, you are God's beloved. And he will provide for you. We can trust him in our work. We can trust him in our rest. We can trust him when we receive our children. We can trust him when we have to let them go. We can trust him because he has provided what was most precious to him to prove that we are his beloved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you above all for Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, flawless and spotless, and his willing death that he took our place. He went to our cross. He paid our full penalty, and he rose from the dead so that we would never have to wonder if his salvation was enough for our sins. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his presence. We, we turn to him in faith. And we thank you that having not withheld him, there is nothing you will not give. And so I pray, Father, for us that you would help us to see you as our provider. That whatever we are struggling with worry about right now, 
with our kids or with our work or with our finances or with our home, with the health of our parents, with anything, Father, whatever we are having trouble getting out of our minds, that you would speak to our hearts the reality that you are our provider, that we would rest in you, that in our work we would rest and in our parenting we would rest and in our rest we would really rest, that we would rest as those who know that God gives sleep to his beloved. Help us to be a people of courage and faith because you are our provider. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.